Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey, guys. Uh, As you know, we've been sort of systematically unveiling free access to the 10% Happier to various groups of people throughout this pandemic. We began with healthcare workers. We had a tremendous response. Tens of thousands of people signed up for free access to the app. Then we uh, rolled out access um, most recently to people who uh, are working in grocery stores or doing food delivery. And now we want to unveil access to teachers who are engaged in the monumental effort of educating our children under deeply, deeply suboptimal circumstances. So big shout out and salute to our teachers. Free access to the app is available at 10percent.com slash care. That's 10% all uh, spelled out in one word, T-E-N-P-E-R-C-E-N-T dot com slash care. If you are in any of these groups, just go there and sign up. It's quick. We'll take care of you. And if you know somebody who's in one of these groups, please send them the link. One other quick announcement. We have been nominated by we, I mean, the 10% Happier app, have been nominated for a pair of Webby Awards. I think the podcast got a Webby Award last year or the year before. Anyway, you can vote for us in the health and fitness app category or in the voice category. We put links in the show notes. Do us a solid. Go vote because, you know, why not? All right, let's get to the show. I call Gretchen Rubin, and she's okay with this, she assures me, the Swiss Army Knife for Happiness. Present her with a problem, she will flood you with practical, customized solutions. I love having Gretchen on the show, uh, and she's been on here many times, not only because she's smart and funny and we're friends, but also because she provides some compelling counter-programming. A large majority of our guests come from the meditation world, but Gretchen approaches happiness from a very different angle. She's a lawyer by training. She started her career clerking uh, with the Supreme Court Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor. And then she went on to write a series of books that examine small, doable ways to boost our happiness in everyday life. Her books include her breakout memoir, The Happiness Project, and then uh, a whole series of follow-on bestsellers, including a book called The Four Tendencies, which is a really fascinating look at how different people form habits. In this interview, we explore a bunch of ways to improve your day-to-day life in the midst of this pandemic. We talk about family relationships, decluttering, setting priorities, managing your relationship to technology, treating yourself without overindulging, and going easy on yourself versus expecting more from yourself. So here we go. Gretchen Rubin. All right. Well, thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Shall we dive in? Yes. All right. You know, so let me just start. I'm I'm curious. You kind of broke into the collective consciousness by writing a memoir about your own happiness. And here we are in this national global trauma. And I'm just curious, you know, what is your happiness level now? What are the issues that are most salient to you personally? To me personally, I have to say that kind of my idiosyncratic mix of strengths and weaknesses and limitations and quirks probably helped me during this time. Like, I'm well-suited to this time. Like, some people love to travel. I don't love to travel. I pretty much stay in my same neighborhood. 
Uh, some people love to do, you know, variety of things, go to live concerts, do stuff like that. I mostly spend my time reading and writing, hanging out with my friends. And now I can do that through Zoom. I have a daughter in college and she's home. So that's a real kind of like silver lining for me, just spending so much time with my family. My daughters don't fight very much. I have two daughters. They're six years apart. So maybe that's part of it. And I, I like not a day goes by when I'm like, oh, I'm so happy I'm home with two daughters who get along really well. So I feel like, of course, I'm so concerned about the fate of the world, the fate of our country. I worry about all the businesses around me. I live in New York City and I see all the stores that are closed. And I, I wonder, is this store going to reopen? How is this shop doing? Are, you know, are these folks going to come back? And I worry about that, of course, and the healthcare workers. Dan, you're in New York every day at 7 p.m. There's just like every day it gets louder, this cacophony of gratitude for the healthcare workers and the frontline workers. So all that is happening. But in my own little world, uh, I kind of have the personality for this, I would say. It's so interesting. So you're sort of wired for this particular emergency. And there are other emergencies, and I think about this all the time, where I would be so badly suited. Like if we had to like figure out some way to flee the country and get into another country and be really resourceful, uh, I would be terrible. I'm not at all resourceful, but I can stay home very easily. (laughs) (laughs) During this period of time, you've been writing and podcasting and thinking, uh, hearing from the folks in your orbit. Before we started rolling, I, I asked you some of the issues that have popped up to the top of the list in terms of what you're seeing out there abroad in the land and thinking about in your own mind. And the number one thing you said, or at least the first thing that came to your mind was relationships. Yeah. Why that? That's because, you know, ancient philosophers and contemporary scientists agree that relationships are a key to a happy life, maybe the key to a happy life. And when you look at people who are happier, it's the people with the the stronger and and bigger number of, of relationships. And what I'm experiencing, you're experiencing, we're all experiencing is that all of our habits and routines of relationships have been broken. And so we're having to reimagine how to connect with people. And so how do I connect with my coworkers when I'm not like going into my podcast studio and seeing all the people that I usually run into and just have casual conversations with? How do I stay in touch with my parents who are off in Kansas City, you know, self-isolating, and I want to make sure that they feel attached and, you know, supported. And so how do I connect with them? My friends, like usually I see friends in my neighborhood, I see people I work with, how am I connecting with them? And so I think really thinking about this as kind of one of the number one priorities during this time, which is how do I maintain my relationships? How do I maybe broaden my relationships by thinking about, you know, reaching out to people who maybe ordinarily I wouldn't feel like I needed to watch out for, but maybe now there's there are people like neighbors or coworkers who you think, I don't know if this person's going to feel so comfortable connecting. I don't see them on this group text. Maybe I need to make a special effort to reach out, make sure that they're sort of still part of the social uh, world because you know everybody keeps saying it's physical distancing, not social distancing. But we're having to figure out new ways to do that. I, one thing I love: my daughter is doing Zoom classes. Right, that's a huge thing too. Students doing Zoom classes. Both my daughters are doing Zoom classes. So my daughter in college, she has this huge lecture class, and one kid shows up every day in costume. This maybe this is a thing, and I just didn't know about it, but. One day he's a baseball player. One day he's a firefighter. Doesn't say anything. Doesn't do anything extraordinary. Just shows up. Or like people are starting to do very whimsical things with their backgrounds. Like 
this is a funny way that we can just connect in a lighthearted way and sort of, you know, say, hey, I see you, you see me. Let's try to create that community feeling as, as best we can. I was talking to somebody yesterday and she used the term anonymity. There's an anonymity, uh, a distance that's happening because I'm looking at you through through glass here. Yeah. But if you can create intimacy, there's also an intimacy because I can see into your home office that I've never yeah, actually seen. True. And, and yes. um, you know, people who are I'm Zooming with now, I see their kids. I see what their yeah. home is like. I, I yeah. recently anchored Good Morning America from home. And I actually did it from a borrowed apartment here in this building. Our, our, my neighbor's. Greg and Liz, shout out to Greg and Liz. Let me use their <laughs> apartment because they're not living in it right now. And I, but and, and then I saw on Twitter there is a whole account called Room Raider, and and they rate oh. people's rooms. Oh my gosh, I'm writing that down. I just I just want you to know I got a nine out of ten. But although Gre- uh, Greg Greg well, and Liz, Liz got the nine, yeah, out of 10. Greg and Liz. <laughs> well, you know, did you see when um, on John Krasinski's some good news? All the full the the original cast of Hamilton sang the song Hamil- uh, Alexander Hamilton and I watched it to see the performances and then I rewatched it to see the, all of their homes to see where they were because I was so fascinated like where where is David like where, what's his background um, so I exactly know that feeling it's a new kind of connection Right. And so leaning into that yes. is a way to create connection at a time when we yes. can't shake hands or hug anymore Yes. Well, that's a great idea. Like, uh, yeah, trying to think of like, maybe how to style your background so that it shows something about you or not worrying too much if a kid wanders through or your dog jumps into your lap or something. Yeah. No, you're right. It is a different kind of entity. I thought you were talking about the kind of feeling that you get. And I've heard from so many people who are yearning for this kind of connection, which is when you're sitting by yourself in a crowded coffee shop. Or you're walking down the street, looking in the store windows, and everybody's passing by you. Or you're standing in a museum, and there's the crowds, all busy. No one's paying attention to you or talking to you. If you just have that companionship of feeling with other people. And I think some people really treasure that kind of connection and that kind of companionship. And that's something that we can't have right now. And you can't fake that. So it's interesting. Relationships, it's not a simple, straightforward thing. There's so many so many shades to relationships and they're they're all under enormous pressure right now which is kind of fascinating i certainly feel like i understand the value of human connection i always intellectually understood it but now i understand it so much more deeply than i ever have before what about you you're locked down with your two daughters and your husband I'm locked down with a five-year-old and, and my wife, and also in an act of total mercy, our longtime nanny, who's a member of our family, is living with us, too, which is amazing. Uh, and shout out to Eleanor, who I love. So, but but relationships, you know, when you're in a tight quarters in New York City, as as you are and as I am, those relationships, it's it's trickier. So I wonder what you, how that's going for you and what thoughts you have on that score. Well, it is a whole different way. One of the things that I I am a person who loves routine and loves like kind of making a plan and sticking to it. And I was very fussed about bedtime. So I have a 21 year old and a 15 year old and they were just staying up and before they were back in school, they were just staying up so late. And I was like, this isn't healthy. They shouldn't do it. Um, it was starting to badger them. And then my, my sister and I were hosts of the Happier podcast and we do an Instagram live. And so I asked the audience. Should I let them just, they're on their spring break for whatever it's worth. Should I let them just stay up as late as they want? 
Or should I really do what I think is the healthiest thing for them to do overall for their health and their good spirits and, and all that and go to bed at a decent hour? What should I do? What should I think? And someone commented, you should do whatever's best for the relationship. And I thought, oh my gosh, that's the biggest moment of clarity, 100%. And so right now I'm really trying to always think, what's the best thing for the relationship? Like my husband has a practice. He's on the phone all day long. I really do feel sorry for him. He's on the phone or on a conference call or a video chat all day long. But he likes to just have it out loud, not using headphones, and just kind of march around the apartment talking at the top of his lungs with these tinny voices talking back to him. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to let that go. That's the way he likes to work. I have a home office. He doesn't have a dedicated home office. I am just going to let that go because that's how he wants to work. And for this relationship at this time, I'm just going to accept that. And so I've been doing a lot of self-talk about, I maybe I think you should do this or that, but I'm going to let you do it your way because as much as we can let people have the slack to do things in the way that feels most comfortable to them, the better right now. What that is bringing to mind is I was talking to uh, Susan Kaiser Greenland recently. She's been a pioneer in teaching meditation to parents and children. And, mm. But she was also talking about the relationship between parents. And mm-hmm. one of her pieces of advice was, and I think this is not exactly the point you were making, but related, is you're going to have arguments. And it's a tug of war. And sometimes the best move is to simply drop the rope. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting that you say that because one issue that I see over and over for myself and for everybody I'm talking to is this craving for outer order. Not for everyone, but for a lot of people, outer order contributes to inner calm at the best of times. And right now when people are really stressed out, I think kind of a stress response, almost uh, like an emergency response is to try to create order in your physical environment. You feel more prepared. And it's also kind of like it's something you can control. I can't control the world. I can't control the virus, but I can control what my coat closet looks like. And so it's sort of a way to calm yourself. And I've heard from and a lot of people, this takes the form of making your bed. And my sister, who's incredibly messy and clutter blind, uh, never makes her bed. But even now, clutter blind, clutter blind. These are the people who just don't see it. They don't see it. They don't care. You know, these folks, if they're in your life, clutter blind. I may be one of them. Uh And she uh, even she's making her bed. But then I've heard from people like, oh, you know, this is a thing every day. I tell my kids to make my make their bed. They'll feel so much better. They'll, you know, it's a good start for the day. and But they won't do it. How do I get them to make their bed? And I'm like, to me, this is a classic drop the rope. It's not that big a deal. It's a nuisance. You know, do you want to use your nagging points at this time on that? To me, that's a drop the rope situation. Now, if you've got three kids in one bedroom and it's driving one of them crazy, then you've got to allow them to kind of come to a situation that works for all of them. But often there are tasks that can just be left undone. I've had some discussions with my wife where our son is acting up. He's otherwise a a perfect little angel, but occasionally he acts up. (laughs) As they always are. Yeah, just in case he's listening. So he uh, was doing something and I was like, all right, I'm telling her, like, this is we got to just start giving him timeouts. And she said... This probably right now on a micro level, but also at a macro level, is not the time to be teaching this particular lesson. Yes. Ooh, good point. Well, we kind of had a, a version of that with our dog, Barnaby. Our dog, Barnaby, is one of these super social dogs. He loves to engage with other dogs. And usually in his life, like he sees tons of other dogs and he's playing with dogs. He goes out for a dog walking thing where they play. And 
And so he was sort of acting up and needing a lot more attention, sort of being more like he's usually very easygoing, but he was just sort of more demanding. And I was like, it's not because he's changed. It's because he's bored. He doesn't see his dog pals, you know. And so it's really related to an unusual situation rather than something that needs to be fixed in some sort of permanent way. But so I hear all this that you have to make allowances for people, the people in your life, because you're all quarantined or cocooned together. I'll just speak for myself. I have less capacity to do that because I, too, am feeling all the various strains. Yes. So this gets to one of a big question that I've talked to people about so often, which is in a time like this, is it wrong to think about your own happiness? Is it morally appropriate to think about your own personal happiness in the context of so much suffering and uncertainty? And I think you put your finger on a reason why it isn't selfish to think about your own happiness. The question of like, am I as calm and as happy and as energetic and as focused as I can be under the circumstances? That is really, it's going to be good for me, but it's also going to be good for the people around me. Because when I'm feeling that way, then I'm going to have more to give. I'm going to have more emotional wherewithal to tolerate frustration, to keep a sense of perspective, to be able to laugh at something. So your kid drops a jar of flour on the kitchen floor and it's a gigantic mess and you can laugh at it and take a photo instead of like losing your mind and losing your temper. It's just that old cliche about put on your own oxygen mask first. And Dan, I know from you, like a lot of what you talk about with meditation is that it allows us to have that kind of self-mastery that can give us the strength to deal in a more constructive and loving way with other people. And so I do think that things like worrying about like, am I getting enough sleep? Am I getting some exercise? Am I getting some downtime? Am I getting like moments of, if I'm very, very, very stressed about something, am I finding ways to give myself even a half an hour break uh, by distracting myself with like a rerun of the office or something. When everything is going so wrong, it can feel selfish or trivial to think about doing things like that. But I really think that that's how we we really are better able to serve others and the world when we try to keep ourselves in our best form, because that's what allows us to to extend that kind of compassion and patience for other people. In terms of taking care of ourselves, what do you think are the top must-dos, A, and then the the second part of this question, and if you forget the second part, I'll remind you later, (laughs) is where do you draw the line between healthy indulgences and Mm. unhealthy indulgences? Oh, yes. Uh, I would say, like, if I was just going to say the basics, I would say sleep, exercise, and that's not, you know, uh, extreme exercise, but even something like 20 minutes There's research showing that if you even just like walk around your apartment, like very light, just moving around for as little as like 20 minutes, you're going to get a boost. Also boost your immune function, which is important to everyone right now. So sleep, exercise, healthful eating, trying to create order really does help for most people. That's why I think it does kind of just make everyday life kind of less noisy when you've got stuff under control. Connecting with other people, that's probably the number one thing. Are you reaching out to people? Are you responding when people reach out to you? I don't know about you, but I've noticed a lot of people aren't responding to emails the way they usually do. And I'm sure there's many, many reasons for it, but I've just noticed, wow, this person usually responds to an email and now they're not. So that's interesting. Uh, If somebody's on a group text, some people are saying they need to mute group texts and only check them every so often because they're getting overwhelmed by them or they feel like they're too distracting. So I think with technology, it's a great servant right now. It's serving us so well, but be the master of it and turn off notifications if you need to, mute group texts at certain times if you need to, only check social media at certain times, 
you know, think about how you can set it up so that it's supporting you and helping you and not distracting you or draining you. Uh, to your second question, I've thought about that a lot because two things are true at this time. And I think sometimes people feel like it's, it's a, they kind of set up a false choice. And the false choice is I can either tell myself, look, this is a global pandemic. Nobody's done this before. You need to take it easy on yourself. If you want to reach for that extra cup of coffee, if you want to have that couple cookies, if you're going to have an extra glass of wine, it, you know, you should, if you're going to stay up till 3 a.m. binge watching something, you know, that's okay because you need to go easy on yourself. Okay. Then there's, if not now, when? I, I'm not commuting. I'm lucky enough that I have some time to work on this project or that project. And I feel like I should be doing it right now. And, you know, this is the time that I'm going to like, you know, get myself back in shape or get back into meditating. I'm going to do it every day. And so it's sort of like go easy on myself or expect more for myself. Treats often fall into that line because it's like, oh, well, given all the stress I'm under, I deserve to have a chocolate chip cookie or whatever. And I think that both things are true. And I think it's important to keep both things in mind. First, we do want to show compassion for ourselves. We do want to give ourselves treats. We do want to cut ourselves slack because truly this is an unprecedented situation. And also research shows that people who show compassion to themselves actually do better. And you might think that beating yourself up mercilessly for some you know, night snacking or something would make you better. It actually, research shows that people do better when they say, well, you know, I'll do better next time. Or I learned that lesson when they show compassion to themselves. You know, maybe you're not at your most productive. You're trying, but you've got a lot of things working against you. It's not so easy to focus right now. And, and that's true. And other people understand it and you understand it about yourself. On the other hand, it's also true that what we do now has consequences. And it's not, nothing stays in Vegas and there will be a beautiful day when the door opens and we all go back out into the world and we don't know what that's going to look like or what the situation will be. And so that uncertainty is making everything very difficult. But we know the day will come. And you don't want to do things now to try to make yourself feel, feel better that are just going to make you feel worse then. And you don't want to miss opportunities now if you can avail yourself of them that might set yourself up for a better future. Um, there might be things that you could do now that would make your future self happy and grateful. It's important to think about treats and also kind of projects in that way. I want to be compassionate to myself, but I also want to try to do what I can do, whatever that might be under my circumstances. For some people, that might literally be nothing. There might be nothing that they can do except just like get through the day in which case, that's exactly what they need to do. And they shouldn't feel bad about that, of course. But for some people, there is an, there are opportunities. And I just think it's good to think about that future self. You know, I, I find this balance very hard to strike because yes. I, I think you're right. Both things are true. We need to treat ourselves. I'm thinking about those great scenes. I don't know if you ever watched that uh, show, Parks and, Parks and Rec. Rec. Yes. Yeah, treat yourself. <laughs> yes. yes, Donna and Tom. Yes. Uh, that show has been my go-to oh, at the end of the show. day I, I i just re-watched the entire show during the course of this <laughs> pandemic i just finished the finale the other day and i'm gonna go back to the beginning because i love oh my that gosh. show so much any scene with ron swanson and a tammy i'm like i've watched it <laughs> times it's like <laughs> i know she's here 
<laughs> he just starts sniffing the air. Yeah. Yes. No, but like that's what I'm talking about. Like, but sometimes if you need a distraction, it's like when things get too much, maybe you're like, okay, I'm just going to watch an episode of Parks and Rec, and it's just going to give me that little mental break that I need to take a deep breath and like get my sense of humor back, laugh. Yeah, I love Parks and Rec. What's so beautiful about that show, I think, is it's a show about love. It's, it's a, show a show about, about all about levels love. of love. Yes. It is a show about love. It's all about people wanting to do the right thing for the people around them. Um, it's funny. I think it's such, like, here's a digression, but in terms of like happiness, it's very hard for happiness not to seem sentimental or mawkish or didactic. I happen to love anything didactic, but not everybody does. That is a show about goodness and love. And it's so funny. It's a masterpiece. And then it managed to do that with such a light touch. That's exactly right, because I'm writing a book about love right now or kindness and compassion, and and it's very hard to talk about it without falling back into cliche. And that's a show, the the density of the humor. I sometimes will just rewind a scene because so much happened that is so funny. So anyway, Parks and Rec is my go-to treat, among others. And but but I've been thinking a lot, you know, the we had a board meeting the other day with our board members at 10 percent happier and we're and our board is usually cautioning us. They're really smart investors who are actually really engaged in meditation, most of them, and uh, really take seriously what we're doing and participate in deep ways in the practice. And usually they're counseling us to prioritize and focus. It's not in this most recent board meeting that they weren't doing that, but we were identifying a number of areas that we could do very exciting and impactful work. And and our investors particularly care about impact on human lives. And we were identifying areas where we could really help people. And we're bumping up against this problem of there are three things, massive things we could do, big projects we could lean into. that I am super excited. And I think we're all super excited to do all of them. And our future selves would be very happy that we did it for the health of the company and the health of our customers. And yet we can't do all of those things. We it would not be self-compassionate to do all of those things. And and I find like a fear based part of me, I think, if I'm yes. being honest with myself, wants to do all of them right away because I, I want to do all, everything to, you know, because it's part greed, it's part fear. But I think below the greed is the fear and, and of, you know, making myself and people around me safe in some way, fending off chaos in some way. Yeah. And so I think this is a deep, for me at least, a deep discussion between, you know, hustling and crushing it in this moment and you know everybody's out there you know trying to get their instagram game up and bake sourdough bread and make their side hustle of a venture-backed startup and all this stuff by the same token we're run down our amygdalas are activated by the ambient anxiety of this pandemic etc etc so for me walking that line is tough i i know exactly what you mean i suffer from the same thing Um, and i think dan you and i kind of are like that all the time our eyes are bigger than our stomach in in terms of our our ability to to execute on creative projects and so like many things uh like any kind of stressor this is an amplifier of human nature so i think whatever you are it's probably intensifying that aspect of your personality I mean, for what it's worth, what I'm trying to do is really just like, what are my priorities for today and this week? Like, what am I really trying to get done? And it is hard sometimes when you're really like trying to get something done to then also have the capacity to step back and try to ask yourself like, well, what's, you know, it's the urgent versus the important. It's the same, you know, it's the same dilemmas, uh, but just kind of in a context where everything is different. Some things are easier and quicker and a lot of things are harder and more cumbersome. 
there's new opportunities, but some opportunities have gone away. It's just like it's a lot of constantly recalibrating. Um, you know, it's like the load symbol is going in my brain a lot as I'm just trying to like weigh what everything means. And it's also strange. I don't know about you, but one thing I'm finding strange and I think a lot of people are finding strange is a lot of times we do. And this is, meditation is all about under like being present in the moment, as I understand it from you, Dan. Um, but we just spend a huge amount of time projecting ourselves into the future. And actually, intellectually, I knew this, but I hadn't realized exactly how true that was until all of a sudden my future just had this giant tentative uh, pasted all over it. And I'm finding that hard because we just naturally think about project ourselves into the future. And so that uncertainty is making it hard to think about decisions and priorities and plans. And if you're thinking about other people's plans, like family plans or team plans, plans for your, for your work, it's hard. Do you have a system or thoughts about a workable system? Because the the notion of setting priorities and ruthlessly holding to them has become, even before the pandemic, a big, it's become increasingly salient in my mind, not that I'm doing it. Yeah. I don't know if you ever read that Greg McKeown book, um, uh, or I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. It's called Essentialism. Yeah. It's about picking the things that are essential and ruthlessly saying no to everything else. Do you? But see, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So let I, see here. My, my problem with that is that what is essential? And I feel like a lot of times you don't know until you have hindsight. Hmm. A lot of times I'll do things and I'm like, eh, unbalanced. Should I do this or not? And then it'll end up being something amazing will come of it. So I feel like I have to maintain in my life some serendipity and I have to overreach to do things that are not essential because sometimes the things that seem the least essential end up being really important. But of course, you can't order your life that way because you, I can't say yes to everything because then I have no time to do anything at all. I just feel like it's not as simple as saying pare down to what's essential because I could easily say what that was now, but I feel like I would be closing off my life from so many things that I can't predict and can't foresee because I haven't kind of been in an uncomfortable place where I've sort of, I'm juggling too many balls at once, which kind of drags me down and makes me feel lousy. But on the other hand, gives me all these opportunities and I meet people I wouldn't have met and have experiences I wouldn't have had experienced. I, I don't know. That's my struggle with this. What do you think? Well, it's so interesting because I, I, I think you and I have talked about this, I, and I've mentioned it on this show many times. I had a 360 review, which is yes. where I had all these people in my life comment on what I'm doing well and what I'm not doing well. And the big, among many big dings, was I, I, I was pulled in too many directions. And so mm-hmm. prioritization has become an increase. It's such a huge issue for me. And what I'm hearing from you is interesting. I, I, sometimes I'm drawn toward the Greg McCune, like you, you, you pick what's essential and you stick to it and you just, everything else is in the trash bin. And I'm drawn to that because it's clean. The and simplicity. It's the, yes. And I, what I'm hearing from you is you don't want to live permanently in a state of harriedness and, and overcommitment. But if you don't, test the boundaries of that a little bit, you lose serendipity, you lose things that are opportunities that you would never have uh, foreseen. And so that strikes me as a razor's edge. I think it is. And I think it's probably one of these tensions with it. Like like one tension within happiness is accept yourself and expect more from yourself. Both are true. 
And I think here it's like, focus on what's essential, but make room for what's not essential. It's like, it's a paradox. And yet I think both things need to be true and, and how to find that balance probably is very different for different people at different times. And it might be that this is one of those times, this might be uh, like a season of life where you're saying, this is not the season of serendipity. This is the season of the few things done well. And maybe that's my job and my family or, you know, whatever, or I'm only going to focus on this aspect. I'm not going to work on that to help get through this time, to just give ourselves more clarity. More 10% Happier after this. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile, third line free on essentials via monthly bill, credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. Let's go back to something you mentioned a few times, but I think deserves a little bit more love, is this idea of outer order. Mm. You you wrote a, a great book called Outer Order, Inner Calm, a great book. I had you on to talk about it when it came out about what seems like a very superficial issue of of decluttering, but actually has a lot of impact and I, I think can have a lot of impact right now. It's just funny how much it matters. I mean, it seems disproportionate and kind of almost silly that cleaning out your coat closet could really lift your spirits. And yet over and over, people tell me that that's the case. It's just when we get control of the stuff of our lives, we really feel more in control of our lives generally. And if it's an illusion, it's a helpful illusion. <laughs> um, and I think also not right now, because people are staying at home, creating more space, getting, you know, organizing, getting, you know, making plans to give certain things away or, or, or toss certain things or recycle them makes more room than everybody has more elbow room. And like, I have a friend who realized that if she cleaned out the storage room, she could have, she kind of had a, a, a kind of a swing room and she used it to exercise and to do phone calls and to meditate. And so she had sort of a room where she could shut the door and kind of it was just empty for whatever she wanted to do with it. And she, you know, it had been in her house the whole time and she just like used it as a dumping ground as one does. You know, you have the place where you just dump everything you don't know what else to do with. But then she was able by creating order to really kind of give herself a whole new room in her house. I ever since, you know, talking to you about your book and having you on the show to talk about your book and you helped me redo my office, which really made a huge Oh, difference. that was so fun. <laughs> Has made you had a, a lot of low hanging fruit. I, I did. <laughs> I did. Uh, and a drum so, set, as I, I recall. That's gone. That drum set is gone because <laughs> um, it was haunting me because I wasn't using it. And so that that kind of ghost clutter that, you know, yes. really uh, is, you called it, I think, visual static. Yeah. 
So and I now having a system like I never let it get cluttered again. But now I've decluttered it. I, I, I it always feels spare in a really good way. And I noticed this during in particular during this time where we're all home all the time, that when one of us, either me or my wife, goes through the work to tidy up. Yeah. It just makes a it makes a real difference. And I don't yeah. know if it's an illusion or what, but it, yeah. it it's hard to argue against. Yeah. Well, and here's some ideas for people who are sort of like trying to manage clutter because it can feel like this unending task. One is the one minute rule. So anything that you can do in less than a minute, you do without delay. So you hang up your coat instead of throwing it over a chair. You put your shoe in the shoe place instead of just like kicking them off by the front door. You put a mug in the dishwasher instead of just leaving it on the counter. And another one is, I call it a 10-minute closer. And it's like, anytime you're you're transitioning, take 10 minutes to just kind of tidy up. So like every time I leave my desk to sort of end my workday, I take 10 minutes and just get organized. Or before I go up to bed at night, I'll spend 10 minutes just like putting the dog toys in the dog basket and, you know, putting the pillows back on the sofa. My daughter's always pulling this, the pillows to like lie on the floor you know, putting the newspapers in the recycling because we are old school and still actually, we're the only people still getting physical newspapers. Put that in the recycling. And just taking 10 minutes every time you're sort of moving from one part of your day to the other, you can do a ton in 10 minutes, just like you can do a lot in one minute. And then another thing that can work really well is to keep a list of all the nagging tasks and to have a power hour every weekend. Hmm. So this is things like replace the light bulbs, Go get something out of the storage unit in the basement. You know, little things that aren't a big deal, but that because they can be done at any time, you end up doing them at no time. And so if you just keep a list of these, again, in an hour, you can go get so many little tasks done. And these are kind of those open things that just drain us. Because every time I come into my office, I'm like, I should tighten that doorknob. And then I don't. And then that goes on for months. So these are some like little easy ways, uh, because a lot of times, like right now, when people feel really pushed to the edge, they don't want to like take out every piece of clothing that you own and put it in a big pile. of. I mean, maybe you do. Maybe some people want to do that. Maybe it's a good time. But for some people, maybe they need to take it very small. Yeah, I mean, I love this. And and I don't know that I maybe I heard that from you. Maybe I just started doing it organically. But Saturday is my day. Mm. I actually have to work on Saturdays, but Saturday is my day where I save all of the emails that I haven't responded to that require a little bit of thought or I just didn't have time. I do those on Saturday and then I do some, you know, household or personal chores that I have been annoying me for a while. I just keep that list and check them off. And that is such a relief. It feels so good. And I've heard of people also, if you don't like the idea of power hour, because some people don't like the idea of like scheduling something. I've heard of people doing like gamifying it. So there are apps that you can use where like it'll make a like a spin the wheel and you like get a thing. Or I've heard of people writing it on slips of paper and then they just pull it out of a jar. And I think for some people that kind of randomness or that, you know, the kind of playfulness of it, then they're sort of like, oh, I have I feel like doing like crossing something off my list right now. What should I do? Pull it out of the list. Oh, I should clean out the toilets or whatever it might be. So there's no one right way to approach it, but the idea of sort of keeping a list so that if you have the time or the energy or you want to get it done, you sort of know what it is and can tackle it. Let's talk about another of your books, The Four Tendencies, mm. and what relevance, what, first of all, maybe you'll, you'll, you'll talk about the basic idea there behind The Four Tendencies and what relevance this schema, this rubric has right now. 
Well, the four tendencies is a personality framework uh, that I devised that divides the world into upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels. And I think it's of enormous help right now because people are working in close quarters and in new ways. And that's what a lot of times conflicts and frustrations and procrastination start cropping up. And the four tendencies really shows you how to communicate with other people and also with yourself to address that most effectively. So you're not just like throwing spaghetti against the wall to try to solve a problem. So the four tendencies, it sounds very boring when I start, but it gets juicy. So what it looks at is how a person responds to expectations. And we all face two kinds of expectations, outer expectations like a work deadline or a request from a friend, and then inner expectations like my own desire to get back into meditation, my own desire to keep a New Year's resolution. And depending on how we respond to outer and inner expectations, that is what makes us an upholder, a questioner, obliger, a rebel. Now, there is a quiz, a free quick quiz, like 2.8 million people have taken this quiz. It's at quiz.gretchenrubin.com. People can take a quiz and like get an answer. But most people know what they are when I just describe them briefly because they're so blatant. So upholders readily meet outer and inner expectations. Uh, they meet the work deadline. They keep the New Year's resolution without much fuss. They want to know what other people expect from them, but their expectations for themselves are just as important. So their motto is discipline is my freedom. Then there are questioners. Questioners question all expectations. They do something if they think it makes sense. So they resist anything arbitrary, ineffective, unjustified. If something meets their inner standard, they'll follow through no problem. If it fails their inner standard, they will resist. So their motto is, I'll comply if you convince me why. Then there are obligers. Obligers readily meet outer expectations, but they struggle to meet inner expectations. And I got my glimpse into this when a friend said to me, I don't understand it. When I was in high school, I was on the track team and I never missed track practice. Why can't I go running now? Hmm. Well, when she had a team and a coach expecting her to show up, she had no problem doing it. But when she was trying to go on her own, she struggled. And so what obligers need to realize is, if there's something that they want to meet as an inner expectation, they must have a form of accountability. If you want to meditate, you must create a form of outer accountability. That is what allows obligers to follow through. So their motto is, you can count on me, and I'm counting on you to count on me. Then finally, rebels. Rebels resist all expectations, outer and inner alike. They want to do what they want to do in their own way, in their own time. They can do anything they want to do. They can do anything they choose to do. But if you ask or tell them to do something, they're very likely to resist. And typically, they don't like to tell themselves what to do. Like, they won't tell themselves, I'm going to sign up for a 10 a.m. meditation class on Saturday morning because I don't know what I'm going to want to do on Saturday. And just the fact that somebody's expecting me to show up is going to, is going to bug me. Um, so their motto is, you can't make me, and neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> so those are the four tendencies. And, I mean, that, I think this has been very helpful because it, 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 it helps you understand yourself and it helps, as you said before, helps you understand people around you. So you have a kind of an owner's or user's manual yes. for the people you have to deal with. Um, that sounds a little negative, but you know what I mean. So here we are in this crisis. In what ways do you think these four tendencies are becoming especially useful now? Well, I think it's just because you know we're all just trying to deal with each other in all these new ways. And for instance, like um, I've been hearing from a lot of parents who are like dealing with schoolwork and their children and trying to get their children to do it because that has, you know, in a new way, in a new structure. And so like for rebels, if you have a rebel child, something to keep in mind is rebels like a lot of choice. They like a lot of freedom. They like to do things in their own way and in their own time. But obligers tend to like deadlines and supervision. So if you had an obliger child, you might say like, well, 
how about at four o'clock every day, you're going to sit down and do your worksheets. And then at the end of it, we'll go for a walk outside together or whatever. So it's like accountability, deadline, put it on the calendar. And I'm watching you. And when we're done, we're going to go, right? That would work for an obliger. For Rebel Child, Rebel Child, apart from the work, the child wouldn't like that setup. They're like, oh, I don't like having to do something at four. I don't like the fact that you're telling me what to do. I don't want to do what you tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me. I'm not going to do the homework, right? So you've set up the, sp- the spirit of resistance where you could say something like, you could appeal to their identity, which is a very high value for a Rebel, and then you could just let them do their work in their own way and say like, you know what? You're a very conscientious student. I know you want to learn and you are ready to learn, but you want to do it in your own way, in your own time. So, you know, when the time is right for you, do it. And, you know, it's got to get done, but I leave that to you. And then see if the child does it. It might very well be that the rebel child will do it. They might do it in an unconventional way. They might do it the night before where you wish that they would do it with plenty of time. Or they might do it all at once in one big, long sprint. And you think, oh, why don't you do a little bit every day? That'd be more efficient. Let them do it in their own way, in their own time, and you're, you tend to get better. And as much choice. Right now, what do you feel like doing? Do you feel like watching the documentary or do you feel like doing the worksheets now? Let the child choose as much as possible. Whereas for another child, that might not be an issue. Questioners are like, why? Why, 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 why? Why do I have to do it now? Why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do this worksheet? The teacher knows that I know. Why do I have to do this worksheet? You need an answer for that child if you want them to follow through. You know, sometimes people are like, because I say so. That doesn't work for questioner adults or questioner children because I say so is not convincing. You have to have a reason. And the fact is, if there is no good reason, then why should they do it? They're perfectly right. <laughs> so, so so I definitely see how, I mean, going through the, to the extent that my kid who's in preschool has schoolwork and he does, uh, going through that, it resonates just hearing what you just said. But also... For those of us who are just listening and thinking about ourselves, whether we have kids or not, this goes back to what we were discussing before in many ways around the voice in our many of our heads telling us to be productive right now. Yes. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, this comes up a huge amount with obligers because an obliger might be very productive at work because there's deadlines, there's a boss, there's the team, there's the deliverables. And be spinning out at home when all that stuff is taken away. And so if you're an obliger and you're like, I don't understand what my problem is. Why am I not getting anything done? Maybe what you need is outer accountability. And there's a million ways to create outer accountability once you realize that that's what you need. Or like rebels, sometimes rebels say, what's my problem? Everybody else can use a to-do list. Nobody else has a problem with the calendar. Why am I not a grown-up like everybody else? It's like, no, that's just a rebel thing. Rebels don't like that. So maybe now that you need to coordinate with other family members, you feel like you're locked into your what time you can use the computer, whereas it used to be you used it whenever you wanted. And now you sort of have a slot and that's just making you crazy. Well, that's a really helpful thing to understand. Like, OK, what I don't like is having the scheduling because sometimes you can't work around something, but sometimes you can. And I think being aware of yourself, kind of what works for you and what doesn't and why you're better able to mindfully set up circumstances that will allow you to do your best work with like the least friction. Because sometimes we just assume people work well in the conditions that work well for us. And so we try to encourage them to have those conditions. Like I'm as an upholder, I love routine. I love deliverables. I love execution. I love to-do lists. And I was trying to badger my whole family into doing that because living that way gives me comfort and energy and makes me feel in control and reassured. 
Well, they let me know very quickly. They did not share that view. And I had to put down my clipboard and let them do their work in their own way. Because I was, I was just instinctively trying to shape their lives to suit me out of love. Because I was like, well, if it works for me, it'll work for them. No, that's not the case. So we had a list of, right before we started uh, formally recording here, we came up with a rough list of things to talk about. The last thing on the list and we can go beyond the list if something else occurs to you. But the last thing on the list was imitate a spiritual leader. Yes, yes. Spiritual master. Master. Yeah. What does that mean? Oh, so this was an idea that I came up with for my book, The Happiness Project, because what I realized is that, you know, you can clean your closets, you can quit sugar, you can exercise, but we really also need to have transcendent values brought into our lives. And I think for many people, meditation is a way to bring transcendent value into our lives, like loving kindness meditation, Dan, which I know you often are a big proponent of, is a way to bring in transcendence. And I was trying to think of ways to bring the transcendent into my everyday life in a way that was sort of practical and manageable. And so to imitate a spiritual master, you have to identify your spiritual master. And this is fascinating. It's so creative. It's so interesting to think about who would you choose to be your spiritual master? I think some people might pick somebody they actually know. Some people might pick a figure out of history. Some people might pick somebody who's alive today. For me, I read this book, Story of a Soul, and instantly St. Therese of Lisieux became my spiritual master, even though I'm not even Catholic. I, I didn't even know about St. Therese, even though she's like, she's a doctor of the church. So she's like a mega celebrity superstar saint. I didn't really know anything about her, the little flower. But I read this number and I'm like, this is my spiritual master. So you first, you identify your spiritual master. That tells you a lot about yourself. Like, what does it say about me that I picked St. Therese? I think it tells you a lot about me. And I learned a lot from myself by the fact that I picked her. Wait, wait, wait. Can I stop you on that? Tell us about her. What about her resonated with you? So St. Therese, she died at the age of 23 from tuberculosis. She spent much of her life in a cloistered convent with a very, like, small number of other sisters several of whom were her actual biological sisters that she grew up with. Um, and at one point, her biological sister was also her mother in religious life. And, and her mother ordered her under the vow of obedience to write the story of her spiritual life, her, um, a spiritual memoir. So under obedience, Therese wrote The Story of a Soul, which is her spiritual memoir. And the thing about Therese that I love is that she, she's, the, she's a saint of little things. And so she's like ordinary life done with heroic virtue. And so it's about just finding the ways in everyday life to be good, be right, to serve others. And she also had a great sense of humor, which you don't think of a saint as being very funny, but she's very funny. In Story of a Soul, she's very wry. She's very realistic about human nature. She writes about happiness. And she's also kind of like mind-blowing. Like a lot of what she says is is uh, very, very thought-provoking. Um, really took me to a place in my head that I had never been before. So, but then I also love Julia Child, who is a different kind of spiritual master, but also like a one. Benjamin Franklin is another one. of my, Winston Churchill, I wrote a biography of Winston Churchill. Absolutely, he's one of my spiritual masters. But I would say St. Therese is my, my principal spiritual master. So you, you identify your spiritual master. Then you have to learn about your spiritual master. So what do your spiritual master teach? What do they stand for? Um, and then the, the, the most interesting thing is, like, given that, how do you translate those teachings into your everyday life? Because for most of us, the teachings of our spiritual master, they, they lived in a very different context from us, and they probably were talking about very different situations and conditions. And so then you have to adapt it. If, if Mother Teresa says, choose your own Calcutta, 
what does that mean for me? That's a different Teresa, by the way, Mother, Ter- <laughs> Mother Teresa. Or, uh, you know, Winston Churchill said, you know, give us the tools and we will finish the job. What does that mean today? And so I just, this is a creative way to sort of get in touch with your own most transcendent values. And then also to think about how would you put that to work in your own life? And I think for each of us, that answer would be very different, but it's, it's very illuminating. Um, and it's also, it's very creative. Speaking of illuminating, I, I was struck by what you said about the saint of little things and how that resonated with you. And that, that is a, a great encapsulation in some ways of, of some, one of the major themes of your work. You know, I mean, a lot of the guests we have on this show, not all of them, but a lot of them are, you know, people who spent 50 years meditating or maybe <laughs> if not 50, 25 or, you know, people who've... <laughs> Only got, 25. <laughs> right. And when I say 25, I mean, year, you know, times when they've just been on silent retreat for months and months and months at a, at a time, they've been deeply immersed in Buddhism. Uh, you know, they've, they've gone to the deep end and they've come back to talk to us about it. And mm-hmm. that's why I've had you on, I think, more than anybody else. Oh, uh, you okay. and Sharon Salzberg, are, I think, are the most frequent guests on this show because I think in, you're a great corrective isn't the right word, but a great bit of counter programming because you <laughs> you you uh, you really do focus on these not mundane is not the right word, but just qu- quotidian yes. aspects of our lives that you know, many people would place outside of the quote unquote spiritual or the transcendent to use a sort of a less uh, syrupy word and to show how meaningful and impactful this stuff can be. Does that sound fair to you, what I just said? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I'm very interested in everyday life, just sort of the what can we do in everyday life to be, you know, happier, healthier, more productive, more creative. And yeah, I've always been drawn to the very concrete. I have been. Yes. That's why I call you the Swiss Army knife of happiness. I know. <laughs> I got to make myself a T-shirt for that. <laughs> thank you very much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Big thanks to Gretchen. If you want to learn more about her, I recommend her website, GretchenRubin.com. You can learn about her podcast, her books. She does all sorts of stuff on social media as well and more. Check out the website, GretchenRubin.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. A reminder, if you're a teacher or if you know somebody's a teacher, we are unveiling free access to the 10% Happier Meditation app. Just go to 10percent.com slash care. Please share that widely in the education world. We'd appreciate that. We would love to just get this out there to as many teachers as possible. And of course, healthcare workers and people in the uh, grocery store or food delivery business as well. Big thanks to the team who uh, work really, really hard to put this show together several times a week now. Samuel John's running point as our producer, Matt Boynton at Ultraviolet Audio. He's our editor. Maria Wortel is our fearless and ruthlessly efficient production coordinator. We get a lot of uh, really, really deeply helpful wisdom and input from our colleagues, uh, Nate Toby, Jen Poyant, Ben Rubin. Also, big thank you to my guys at ABC, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you on Wednesday with another really great episode. The Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams coming up on Wednesday. We'll see you then. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat 
Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fu, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.